With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Zing Singh, your host for season two of the Women's Prize podcast, coming to you every fortnight throughout 2020. You've joined me for a special bookshelfy episode in which we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five brilliant books by women. Welcome back to another episode of Bookshelfie recorded during the coronavirus lockdown. We are recording this episode for you remotely, so if there are any sound issues, please bear with us. Today's guest has been a household name for the last 20 years. Famous first for her flaming red hair and modelling career, and now better known as a philanthropist, an actress, an entrepreneur, an activist, a mother and an author. She was awarded a first class in history of art from Cambridge in 2011. In 2013, she co-founded Impossible.com, a technology company that uses tech to solve social and environmental problems. She's spoken at Davos, Google Zeitgeist, Wired and Web Summit. She was an affiliate at the Berkman Center at Harvard University. And her new book, Who Cares Wins, is being published on the 31st of July this year. It is, of course, Lily Cole. Lily, welcome. Hey. How has the lockdown been for you so far? Wow, that's a big question. Um... I'm still processing it. It feels hard to I don't I feel hard to like land land on strong opinions about. Uh I feel very lucky and privileged um that we live in the countryside. We have lots of outdoor space. Um we're able, you know, we can afford the necessities and I think my worries right now with communities that are in much 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 more difficult situations facing the situation. Um mm-hmm. I mean trying to look for the silver linings since the beginning um of which I think, you know, there there are a lot to find whether it's stillness, time with family, a shift in how we think about work and consuming and living, um, maybe a more sustainable pace of life. Um, so I've been trying to focus on the positives, but obviously it's, a, I think, probably a, quite an emotionally fraught time for many people. Oh, definitely. I think so. I think and of what anything. About you? I mean, it's been fine for me. I've been in London, so I feel relatively safe and secure in my own place again, just kind of musing on how lucky I am to not be a frontline worker, to not be a key worker, to not be out there at the front of the epidemic trying to get it under control. But I have friends and family who are. So, you know, there's that sense of worry about whether they're going to be okay and hoping for the best. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about people in refugee camps and um, communities where it's impossible to social distance or wash your hands, Um, places where there's little food security and yeah, yeah, it's... We, I think the people who are able to speak about their experience for the most part are usually the lucky ones. Um, it's the, the people we're not hearing from that are voiceless right now that I would worry about. Exactly. And I think that one of the things about the pandemic is that it touches every single section of society. And I do, can't remember the last big news event, maybe, that had that effect on everybody in the world in the same way. Like everyone's affected differently, but it's the one news event that is on the agenda for every single country, for every single person in the world. For sure. And actually, that's a silver lining I look to. Yeah, in the beginning of the book that I've just written that you mentioned, Who Cares Wins, I talk about the climate crisis as a kind of unifying threat that has the potential to bring humanity together. Mm-hmm. And um, and obviously, the coronavirus has done that. And for all the, the hugely traumatic and negative fallouts it is having, um, I think one of the silver linings is that we have been brought together and p- 
people of you know different economic and kind of socio-political backgrounds all have to all have to deal with it together Mm -hmm. um and and hopefully there's something very unifying the potential for something very unifying that could come out of that experience i know fingers crossed and you know there's some things that i've noticed that people are turning to more and more during the pandemic you know being able to talk to their friends, their family, being able to have access to, you know, art, literature, music that has been a kind of comfort to them in these days, that's come across quite strongly to me. And I think maybe getting back to old old hobbies and dreams that often we're too busy to do, finding time to, to do things in a DIY way, um, I think can bring a lot of a lot of pleasure to life, you know, the simple pleasures. Exactly. Have you been reading a lot during the lockdown? I haven't. No, <laughs> I wish I had. I was reading a bit. Um, one of the nice things about this podcast is it was I was looking back on my book list and th- having feeling justified in just spending the day reading. Um, I've actually had quite a lot of work to do from home and um, having you know not you know having changed out. Um, my daughter's not in nursery anymore, so having much more time with her has been beautiful and a blessing. But also is a juggling act with other work things I have going on. Mm-hmm, definitely. Do you read to her a lot? We read her two stories every night. I actually just started her on a Harry Potter audiobook this week. I think it's, I think, I think it's, I don't think she's there yet. I think I was about eight when I read those. I think I'm being a bit eager, but, <laughs> but um, she's getting into Enid Blyton and uh, the Faraway Tree. Um, she loves like Planet books. She loves Peter Rabbit. I don't know all a lot of the old classics and some new ones mixed in. Um, Julian is a mermaid. Gorgeous illustrated book. Oh, nice I read variety. that recently. It's gorgeous such a book. great book, isn't it? Yeah, it's nice when you find a child's book that speaks to an adult as well as a child. So you're kind of enjoying it yourself while you're reading it. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's all the classics, really. And you've got quite a few classics on the list of books for bookshelfy. I mean, the first one you picked is Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Yeah, and I, I mean, can't I... think of a more classic novel than that. I know. Part of me thought I shouldn't include it because I've already spoken so much about why I love that book. At the same time, it is it did have an impact, a significant impact on my life growing up. So it would feel a bit of a lie to not include it. So there you go. There it is. There's there's Emily again. <laughs> How did it have a significant impact on your life? Well, maybe that sounds a bit melodramatic, not a significant impact, but like it you know, you you read books as you're growing up and some of them have a kind of formative impact in how you think or make a very strong impression on you. And it was one of those books that, um, I don't know, just, I guess, emotionally resonated with me in a very strong way. And then I went back to and, you know, read read again over the years. And I think as I've gone older, I've been probably better able to deconstruct in a more analytical way why I like it. Um, mm-hmm. The kind of, some of the politics to it, I think probably really spoke to me without realizing it. But it's also just beautifully written and, any story that creates a very strong imaginary world where you believe in the characters and you believe in the relationships and the places it's um it's almost like a a memory of a of a holiday that you or a house you used to live in that you want to go back to um that feels real in your imagination so how old were you when you read it for the first time i'm afraid in all of these books i'm going to have to be a bit vague cuz i don't remember the exact dates um i read it in school I think it was like early secondary school, mm-hmm. I want to say. So like young teens. Was it one of the books that you read for class or was it something you picked up for pleasure? No, it was definitely a class book. I remember writing notes in the margins and all that kind of 
bookish stuff you do in school. So it was definitely a class book. But, you know, you read lots of class books and a lot of them fall away. Um, it was one that I then came back to just for enjoyment, you know, later. What do you think spoke to you at that age about Wuthering Heights? Because I remember being in English class and reading a ton of books that, you know, like you say, failed to connect with at all and at, actively despised by the end of, you know, school and A-levels. So what was it about Wuthering Heights that really spoke to you? I think first and foremost, it's just very beautifully written, very poetic. And I think some books manage to create a very strong, real, solid sense of place and character. Um, that once you've gone into that world, it's like a familiar territory. And so I have a few books that are favourites of mine that I will reread in life because when I reread them, it's like almost like seeing old friends, that it feels familiar, the landscape that you've created in your mind attached to that story. And Wuthering Heights is, is one of those. So I think probably it was just fed my imagination in a really strong way. I think later in life, looking back on it, I'm kind of very impressed by... Emily Bronte herself as a writer and also the politics that were quite subtle in it around essentially feminism before written before there was much of a discourse around feminism or it wouldn't have been understood or even maybe recognized by Emily in those terms but the relationships between capitalism and property and um, women losing their property rights and therefore how that affected their romantic relationships and their choices was kind of woven throughout that text in a really strong way um and maybe that had nothing to do with why I liked it in the first place but maybe that's what makes me appreciate it more over time I think it's such a subtle book because you're learning about basically women and how they were deprived of property deprived of their liberty but in such a way that it feels like a real kind of yarn I don't know how else to put it it's very readable which I think is why you know as young people especially young women they love Wuthering Heights in a way that, you know, they might not other novels from the same time period that are kind of foisted on them by English teachers and school mm -hmm. and exams and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. And the politics isn't in your face at all. You almost have to unpick it to find it. And and that might have been conscious on Emily's part, or it might have been that she didn't even think of it as political. It was more that she was grappling with these structures that she existed within and trying to make sense of them and how they were impacting um, her and her sister's lives. Um, and, th and that subtlety, I think, is one of the reasons it's powerful, because it's not pushing a political idea down your throat. It's um, exploring human relationships with the politics as a kind of invisible backdrop that's then affecting the relationships. Were you quite a big reader when you were growing up? I think I was, yeah. There's a, I mean, it's very hard to be objective about yourself, but there's a photograph of me immersed in a book <laughs> I think it was like some cheesy cheesy book very young but my face looks very intense and very serious um and I think that I did I did find a real solace in books and a really kind of I loved I just loved going into those different worlds um and yeah I, I think I really yeah always really really since the age I obviously could read really loved it it's still hard to find a good book I find and so I'll go long periods of not really reading because I haven't found something that really captures me. And then when I find something that captures me, it's like, it's wonderful. It's like a, a love affair, you know, <laughs> you can just mm -hmm. enjoy it. Because I imagine that, you know, in your modelling days, you must have had to travel so much. And most people think that travelling is a boon towards reading books. But sometimes you can't really concentrate when you're travelling all the time. Well, I I was always modelling when I was studying. Um, mm -hmm. 
And the way I managed to to keep the two going at the same time was actually by taking books, usually school books, with me on trips. So whether it was traveling or getting my hair and makeup done, for that period of my life, I pretty much always had a book in my hands um, because I would take those times. Modeling is like, luckily you have a lot of time where you're just waiting around, getting your makeup done, on a train, on a plane. Um, and I would use that time to be doing my schoolwork. <laughs> so I was actually probably not like reading maybe f- like for enjoyment, but yeah, reading. Was that kind of, you know, did you kind of motivate yourself to study that hard during those times? Or, you know, I don't, you know, with modeling, like, are people expecting you to, you know, like, when you're a child actor, there'll be a tutor and stuff like that? Or was it basically all off your own back? I didn't have a tutor or anything. It was all off my own back. Um, The lucky thing is I'm probably quite a geek that I actually like enjoy (laughs) enjoy reading and enjoy learning if it's a subject I like so there might have been some parts that felt sluggish but a lot of the time I was actually really interested in what I was doing um so it made it made moments that might have actually been quite boring like traveling or uh, I don't mean I don't like traveling itself but I mean the journey um and um or getting your makeup done it made it could maybe make those those moments more interesting I still had fun I'm not saying I was only reading books for years of my life but um but I managed to to fit the books in the second book that you picked is Audrey Lord I am your sister which is her collected writings and I think you were given this as a present from a friend yeah from a really good friend of mine um probably four years ago and um, I was familiar with her writing probably more anecdotally from quotes I'd read here and there um, but seeing it collected together uh, was like, yeah, just a powerful moment. It's also such a political collection of essays. Yeah, I think there's actually, if I look at the five books I've chosen, they're all quite political. It wasn't on purpose, I guess. Those are the kind of books that speak to me. Um, I think she's an amazing thinker. I I think she speaks very clearly and powerfully um, and the way that she looks at the intersecting natures of oppression and the fact that we can't separate out one version of oppression from another um that it's all part of a kind of system was i think at the time when she was writing it kind of very pioneering and um and it still feels unfortunately very relevant today i know to me it seems crazy that we're still talking about issues and concepts that she pretty much pioneered decades ago yeah well, it's a big head fuck of a system, right, that we're we're grappling with. And I don't think it can be, can be unraveled in even a few decades um, or even really a few hundred years, because, of course, she was building on the back of work that's been done for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. But but it does sometimes feel like progress is slower than we'd hope or want it to be. Were you always interested in books of a political nature? Certainly not what I was reading when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so not always. Um, but... I do I do always like to kind of challenge my own politics, open my mind to different perspectives. I, I like to be learning and, and always learning. And um and so I really appreciate it when I find thinkers that resonate with me and whose politics feels feels truthful, if that makes sense. Um mm. and what I like about her writing, and I haven't read everything she's written. But the bits I have read, I I feel like it's not um, it's not coming from a place of anger or coming from a place of 
demonizing the other. I feel like mm -hmm. there's a kind of language of compassion that Bell Hooks had as well, that's recognizing oppression and not being silent about it, but at the same time, not creating more division, um, but trying to come from a place of, of um, compassion almost. I think that's really important. And, you know, you yourself have done quite a bit of campaigning work as well. Yeah, and maybe that's why it speaks to me. You know, it's like she feels like an activist when you... I mean, she is an activist, and when you read her writing, it feels like a rallying call to activism to for people to not stay silent about any part of themselves that they need to voice or express. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a brave kind of rallying call that would have been very brave when she was writing it you know um way back when how would you describe your own kind of campaigning activism i think an evolving one where mm -hmm. i am always learning i can i think be probably quite um opinionated and i try not to be too opinionated um, i think probably i get less opinionated over time in a way or less sure of my opinions. Um, and it's a kind of deli delicate balancing act between being kind of uh, brazen enough to say or act when you feel like something's wrong, but at the same time being humble to the fact that no one has the full picture, no one has all the answers, and we're all learning. And so to not ever be too strong in your own convictions. Um, I don't know if that sounds really vague, but I think... No, I would... think it sounds really admirable because... Um... I feel like the common trajectory for most people is that as they get older, they get more certain of their opinions and less willing to kind of listen to other people's opinions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I've been really trying to like, not just in terms of activism, but just in terms of life, hold on to like what they call the beginner's mind, um, which is not an easy task, you know, but like try and retain. So many people have written about it, whether it's Eastern philosophers or William Blake talking about um, the innocence of childhood, but the need to try and retain the openness of, of your mind when you're young and an openness in all ways, like whether that's political to different kind of political conversations or just to our understanding of reality and our values and our understanding of what life is and should be and means. Um, I think it's so easy to be, and I've seen it happen myself, that over time you become more and more maybe contaminated by the society and the world that we live in and habits and ways of doing things. And I think it's a kind of effort to try and peel that away so that you're always in a more, slightly more kind of open-minded, child, childlike, maybe childlike sounds naive, but um, I guess open-minded is the word, way of, of um, approaching reality. Mm, how do you, I mean, how do you do that in your Oh my God, life, it's a desire, not a, <laughs> it's not an accomplishment. <laughs> It's something I'm trying to do, not that I've achieved. Yeah. Um, but it feels like the right thing to try and achieve. So. <laughs> right. Well, we were talking, you know, just earlier on about how during I think learning the from my kids. Sorry to interrupt you. I think yeah. I, I looked at my daughter who's four and I'm like, what can I learn from you? Instead of like this idea that, you know, kids are always learning from adults. And obviously there's a bit of that going on. I'm really interested in like what we adults can learn from children um, because they have a magic and an openness that, is um sadly i think lost along the way for a lot of a lot of people growing up your daughter sounds amazing 
She's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm a fan. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize of Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favorite book. Look no further for the dreamiest summer treat. Strawberries and cream combines ripe strawberry flavor with the creamy, delicious taste of Bailey's. So don't forget to treat yourself by pouring the ultimate dessert over your eaten mess at a picnic in the park or maybe just in your back garden over ice with your most adored book. Now that's our idea of living summer best. I mean, speaking of children, I think that brings us really well onto your third pick, which is The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. Um, I actually read this and cried hysterically by the mm, end of it. Interesting. Um, had had such an emotional response to it. It's one of my favourite books as well. Tell me a bit about how you encountered this book. So it was recommended to me by a friend in a kind of ad hoc way. We were in a bookshop and I was buying a book and asked if she had any recommendations and she she pointed this one out. And then I took it with me. I was doing a trip um, to Australia. This is quite a few years ago. And it's in Australia for like a month. And I took the book with me and read it while I was there. And it just happened, wasn't planned, but it happened to coincide with being in Australia and um, meeting meeting someone who works a lot with the indigenous communities in Australia and learning through him about, you know, more about kind of indigenous history and particularly about matriarchal communities, the area we were staying in. Um, was historically a matriarchal community and I was really interested in that and somehow those two things wove together in a really powerful way reading that book which is so I mean it's a feminist book but it's also so insanely contemporary um, Mm -hmm. with this idea of of a matriarchal history and what humanity might have looked like thousands of years ago in different social forms um, and in some of these communities where um, either there was a kind of balance between the genders or um, women had kind of leadership roles or positions of authority. Um, and yeah, it just, the two things coincided, spoke to me in a very powerful way and made me maybe just realise still what a kind of patriarchal system we are in and are emerging maybe out of. For people who aren't familiar with the books, and I know this is very hard because Maggie Nelson's writing kind of defies categorization. Could you kind of briefly describe what it's about? Oh my gosh, no. (laughs) (laughs) As you say, it does defy categorization. I mean, it's, it's even the writing style is a real mashup in a good way. It's like slips between memoir, prose, poetry. It's not clearly one form. Um, It's about a love story first and foremost, um, between her and her partner and parenting. But it's but it's interwoven with politics that comes through the anecdotes. Um, and, and the metaphor of the Argonauts is, I guess, how things can change, but stay the same, stay essentially the same. How would you describe it? Hmm, I think I would, I would describe it too as a love story um, between... Uh, the protagonist and her partner Harry, who is transgender, and their I guess you could essentially boil it down to their quest to have children, but it's so much more than that because it slips between academia and prose and poetry and 
to me, some of it sounds very lyrical. There are really intense passages like that are so emotional. Like I'm remembering the childbirth sequence in the book. Mm-hmm. That was the point where I started crying, I think, because it was mm-hmm. so intense to read something like that. And felt it's just phenomenal. Honest. I think that's one of the yes. reasons I really liked it. It felt so powerfully honest um, an honesty that I don't, you know, I don't meet and most people don't. Um, that's very brave. And I love the the end. There's like a very short part where Harry writes. You hear his voice at the end. I mean, I've I've because I don't have children myself, and I've always wondered that about the passage that affected me so much was the childbirth passage. This is not a spoiler because I I don't really think there's a spoiler for this book. You have to read it yourself to understand it. But um, you're a mother. Did that did that experience of pregnancy and childbirth and having children? Did that all feel very true and resonant? I think, yeah. And actually, I was reading it not long after I'd had my daughter. So maybe that was part of the the reason it spoke to me. Um, mm. But everyone's experience of childbirth and and sex and parenting and, and love and all the kind of visceral and messy things that she describes are also quite different and subjective. So it wasn't it wasn't as if I read it and was like, that's my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but the honesty of it felt, I felt connected to. Um, yeah. Because quite often those themes are like sugar-coated and romanticized or just kind of tiptoed around. And those themes, things like sex and childbirth are are much more visceral and raw sometimes than language captures. And I think her honesty made it feel much more real. Oh, definitely. I think that, especially in a lot of literature, there's a sense where it's either sugar-coated or it's dramatised to be absolutely brutal and unyielding and terrible when there's so much shades of grey in between all of those things. Mm -hmm. I mean, probably... Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights is the other end of the spectrum, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it's very much on the brutal side of things. And, and a more romanticised, like, without going into the detail of anything. But that's because also a product of its time. Um, mm. And it's important, I think, to, to understand writers in the context of their time, which actually leads quite well onto the next book. Yes, your fourth book is Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own. For me, is is has to be viewed in its time in some ways. It's one of the most progressive essays ever written. Beautifully written, so powerful, so important. And also it has kind of what would probably be seen now as blind spots um, uh, that I think are probably um, a product of of her time and were Virginia Woolf alive today. And in the kind of political discourse of today, she probably would be writing in a slightly different way. Where do you think the blind spots are? I think there's a kind of slight acceptance of colonialism as a positive mm-hmm. that's subtle, but that exists in um, in some of her writing and thinking. The idea of kind of civilising other nations being a positive thing, I feel really uncomfortable with. Um, but I could see that a hundred years ago, that was the way that people thought. And probably a hundred years from now, there will be similar blind spots in the thinking of some of our most progressive thinkers today, if that makes sense. No, I think that does because, you know, we've talked about how it's a journey, isn't it? And people are always constantly recalibrating themselves. 
Totally, yeah. And that's actually what I like about also Audrey Lord, you know, and Virginia Woolf, both of them talk about imperfection and the beginning of a room's one's own. Virginia Woolf kind of says, look, there's like sex and gender are way too complicated for anybody to get right. And I'm not going to pretend I can get it right. And it isn't about getting it right. I'm just going to explain my journey up until now um, and reveal how it's, you know, how I've got to this position. And Audrey Lord also talks about imperfection and the the quest of oneself to to um to keep learning basically um so yeah that both of those kind of positions really speak to me because i think there needs to be a humility in um in any serious kind of political discourse it's interesting you mentioned imperfection because i'm wondering if you know the current time we're living in allows for that kind of imperfection for that kind of growth or whether we just expect our heroes to be to be perfect all the time. I don't think we're very. I I don't say we in a very generalized, broad um, sense, which isn't fair because obviously there's a wide mix of people. Um, but I think a lot a lot of kind of our culture today is is I think it's quite problematic um, how we mm-hmm. take very strong moral positions sometimes, and then don't allow for imperfection and don't allow for space for growth and um you know whether it's the cancel culture or cutting people down I, I get quite uncomfortable with the way that that discourse can become quite um uncompassionate and judgmental and therefore seems quite arrogant in a way mm, no I think I I think I totally get what you mean because it feels like you can't expect someone to come out of the womb perfect morally perfect it just seems impossible and also to assume that we that that you the speaker the thinker are in a position where you you of authority like a moral authority where you've got it all figured out is to be blind to the things that we ourselves might have missed and therefore mm-hmm. the, the things that we can still learn um and i've done it myself you know i'm not i'm not saying i'm exempt from that where as i say i have been and can be kind of quite opinionated but i do try and constantly check myself so that i'm still open to learning were you always opinionated or was this something that kind of developed over time? I think I was pretty opinionated. I think I was more opinionated when I was younger. Um, I felt quite strongly about things and sure of things. And I think that sureness has been chipped away probably the more I've learned and questioned my assumptions or doubted myself or seen a different point of view. I mean, you've had a really long and wide ranging career. So I'm guessing you must have come up against loads of opportunities to challenge the way that you thought. Was there anything that sticks out? Don't I don't have a singular things that stick out. I think it's, I think I think traveling was a huge blessing in my life. Um, getting the opportunity to travel to different cultures, I was, uh, I mean, it just gobble, I gobbled it up. I love learning about different cultures and just seeing that people act in such different ways in different environments and have different belief systems and um, ideas about the world. So I found that a very mind-expanding experience. I've been so lucky to work with many diverse people and become friends with diverse people. And I learned through conversation. Um, so I think, yeah, um, I, feel, I feel very, very lucky that I've had quite an eclectic mix of experiences. And, um, and that's probably helped me stretch my opinions or mind in different ways. So you read A Room of One's Own first in school and then you re- reread it when you were making a documentary about Wolf for the BBC. 
Yeah. What was that experience like of making a documentary about this writer? So yeah, I presented a documentary um, for the BBC called Icons, where they got the British public to vote on who was the most iconic. Um, it's kind of a ridiculous premise in a way, <laughs> because you're comparing these extraordinary people, but to vote for the most iconic um, person of the 20th century was the premise. And I, I did the episode on um, artists and writers, um, and Virginia Woolf was one of four of them. And I mean, it was wonderful, because... I was familiar with Wolf's work a little bit from school. Um, and of course, we're all familiar with different quoted bits here and there. But I hadn't delved deep into her as a as a person and, and her story. Um, and so, yeah, I just thoroughly enjoyed um, spending that time reading more of her work. Um, I got to see in the British Library some of the uh, real manuscripts she'd written on. Went to her house in Sussex, she had an amazing, beautiful little house with an amazing garden. Um, learning more about, yeah, her life and her love affairs. And um, I found um, really, I mean, it's a it's a great job, right? When you, when you get paid to do something that you really enjoy. And that was one of those. One of the things I love about Virginia Woolf is that when you're introduced to her in school, obviously for G-rated reasons, you're not allowed to learn that she had all these like massive unspooling affairs. Uh, that encircled this huge group of contemporary writers and artists. And then you find out about it and you're like, oh, she seems like a person I'd like to hang out with and party with and go out drinking with. She seems like a laugh. <laughs> yeah, her love affair with Vita Sackville West, um, which is what we focused on. The, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I mean, it's kind of phenomenal that maybe that's changed, but it wasn't taught in school when I was there. Um, and it feels like an important part of understanding her and her politics. Um, but yeah, as you say, I think probably it's been a bit sanitized out of her story. I think it's coming back. I think now is the time where these stories are uh, seeing the light of day. And there's been, I mean, it's been made into a film, I think, in the last year, and there's been a few books about it. So your fifth and final book is Ya Jassi, who wrote Homegoing, which is a very contemporary book. I think it came out in the last few years. Yeah, I read it about a year and a half ago. So how did you come to this book? A friend gave it to me and um, and I read it very quickly. I mean, it's a very, e like, not easy, that sounds um, diminishing. Like, it's a very quick, fast-moving, easy read in the sense that it's so lyrically written that you just want to, you just want to, you just kind of race through it, you know. Um, and, I, and, I, and I found it really powerful. It's a really unusual structure where every chapter is a, is a new story. And you could almost take out a chapter and just read it by itself. But they thread together um, through through a kind of ancestral lineage. So you're following the thread of two half-sisters um, in Ghana several centuries ago, whose lives go in very different um, directions through the slave trade. And, and then you follow their children's stories and their children's stories and their children's stories. And you're going each generation to the next up into the present day. Um, and it's just this an amazing overview of history that made me think about obviously slavery and race and um, and the racial issues we have today, how they relate to a racial history that's been happening for for, for a very very long time. Obviously, she looked at a few hundred years. You could take that back, arguably thousands of years, um, but also from a personal perspective, how. Uh, we are connected to our ancestors and 
our own stories without us often knowing are connected to these other very, very different, um, sometimes quite difficult or traumatic stories that happened before us through our ancestors. And I feel like our culture doesn't spend much time thinking about our connections today to to our ancestors and our ancestral history that we all carry and we all um, have, even though science is starting to show that kind of ancestral trauma is carried through genetically. So it's affecting us um, physiologically, psychologically. I thought it was a very beautiful book that, yeah, that allowed for a, a kind of broader perspective of understanding our moment. It's interesting you talk about ancestry because I feel like talking about where your family are from or, you know, what their experiences are has kind of almost become the realm of really nafancestry.com and, you know, totally, your yeah. retired like aunt looking into their history. Yeah, or like quite like hippie cliche stuff, which is really unfortunate because it's real. It's like there's not, you know, there's nothing um, weird or new age or metaphysical about the idea that we all have ancestors and we all come from these legacies and to lesser or greater degrees have a connection to those stories and, and what our ancestors went through. Um, it's a really beautiful metaphor I heard that's like, you are the you are the point of the arrow and your ancestors are all of the lines coming towards that point. You know, it's like we wouldn't exist without that those histories behind us. And arguably they have a big effect, those histories have a big effect on um, our personalities and our societies and our culture and everything we kind of take for, for granted in human society today. And so kind of understanding that history is arguably important. That's a lovely image. Do you feel connected to your own family history? Not enough. Um, I would like to more and I've been making an effort to, to put up pictures of my um, grandparents in the house and um, I'd like to make more of an effort, especially like with my daughter now of, t of trying to like translate those stories to her um, and capture them. So I've made some effort, yes, um, but not nearly enough. I would like to understand my family's history um, and my daughter's father's family's history as well better. What were your grandparents' history? Well, my grandfather on my mother's side um, was very young and he fought in the war. He was involved in Dunkirk. Um, wow. Yeah, and... I never met him. He died before I was born. Um, but it's it's crazy to think that that, you know, the war and Dunkirk and these things that feel historical and far away were so closely connected to us. You know, it's only two generations ago. Um, mm. And um, he grew then my mum grew up in a on the, in the south of Wales on a mountain um, with him and and um, her mum, Sylvia and her sisters and I mean, I made a documentary last year about, or two years ago, about a friend of mine, Mark Boyle, who lives without electricity or any modern technology in Ireland. He's made that choice as an environmentalist and really seriously lives off the land. Um, mm -hmm. And when I showed it to my mum, my mum was just like, yeah, but Lily, that's how I grew up. <laughs> um, <laughs> on a mountain with no electricity and no running water um, and um, a farm. So yeah, a very different, very different reality and lifestyle to... Um, to you know what most of my contemporaries experience today um my father's side my father's spent most of his life on living on a boat um and his family came from devon 
and I know them I know that side of the family less well but um and unfortunately all my grandparents have passed away but I would like to learn more uh, more about their history too I think it's so interesting how you just need to dig a little bit and then you uncover all these stories of how your ancestors were involved in these huge pivotal events that changed the world basically mm-hmm and then how that's maybe affecting us today, you know. Um, I read an article in the context of the coronavirus, I can't remember where it was, a week or two ago, that was saying that this experience, that we have, like, that many of us have a kind of latent memory of the First and the Second World War through our ancestors, through those stories, whether you believe it's through the storytelling of our parents and the, the kind of psychological effect it had on them and therefore us, or the, the science that says that there's kind of trauma does pass through genes, we have a kind of latent knowledge of this recent history that profoundly affected many of our families and that this new crisis is is triggering some of those same responses, um, whether it might be the, the desire to, to unify and band together and kind of go into the war effort mode or to grow our own vegetables and be more kind of victory garden DIY-esque. Or, I'm not saying I know how that manifests, but I thought it was an interesting argument that... Um, that there was something oddly familiar about this experience, even though it's so new to many people. That's interesting. I think I think there is an argument to be made that, you know, in times of crises, you default to what feels quote-unquote instinctive. And you might have observed that either from your grandparents or your parents observing what their grandparents did, or you just have this kind of latent knowledge of, this is how I need to react in this situation. Right. Well, final question. If you had to choose one book from your list as your favourite, which one would it be? I think it would be The Argonauts. I think, um, I mean, it's a very hard question. It's not very fair. Mm-hmm. I hate I hate the questions. Whether no, I know. It's your favourite film ever. Rank them. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I almost want to be like, no, there's no hierarchy of oppression and there's no hierarchy of books on this list. But, um, <laughs> um, but if you forced me, I feel like that one, probably because it feels the most unusual in a way, um, it feels so the the structure the way it's written is it feels like it's breaking the mold of of um of how we think about writing and um and it feels the most contemporary so um so yeah i'd probably choose that one plus you really liked it so that's an easy way to just throw it <laughs> throw it onto you basically <laughs> i mean what would you I could go on about this i would go on about this book forever like if if i had i've recommended it to so many friends um, with varying degrees of success, not everyone likes it, which I find very surprising. But I mean, I, I don't find that surprising choice. at all. I mean, it's quite an out there book. It is very out there. I'm sure it is... probably somebody will listen to this podcast and then they'll read the book and they'll be like, what the hell? <laughs> what, were the, what were these two women talking about? <laughs> but some people will love it. So yes. And that's and maybe the, the minority beauty of books of is that it's it, it there is no right and wrong and it, it is subjective and you know um, horses for courses we have different tastes exactly so for the minority of people who will absolutely love this book (laughs) we can both highly recommend it yeah (laughs) well thank you so much lily you've been great thanks you've been great too i'm zing sing and you've been listening to the women's prize for fiction podcast brought to you by baileys and produced by birdline media you definitely want to click subscribe because in our next episode, we'll be exploring three previous winners of the Women's Prize in a book club with three brilliant guests. 
please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard from today. And thanks very much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>